Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Will Creeley of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, who talks about the need to protect free speech amid the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on college campuses across the U.S. Kika Matos, president of the National Immigration Law Center, who examines congressional Republicans' demand for draconian immigration laws in exchange for their support for Israel and Ukraine aid. And Dr. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and climate activist, who assesses the lack of progress made on addressing the global climate crisis at the COP28 UN Climate Summit in Dubai. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a sign of growing global division, Italy's right-wing Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney notified China that her nation was ending its participation in the Belt and Road Trade Initiative, or BRI. Italy was the only Western government to have joined China's trade promotion program to build a new Silk Road to connect China with Asia, Europe, and beyond. Italy joined BRI in 2019. However, the government felt it was only boosting China's exports to Italy, but did not increase Italy's exports to China. The U.S. and other Western nations fear Beijing is using the trade and infrastructure programs to take control of sensitive technologies and vital infrastructure. More than 100 nations have signed on to China's Belt and Road Trade Initiative to cooperate on infrastructure and building projects since the scheme was launched in 2013. The Guardian reports that as of last March, China has spent $240 billion to bail out developing nations struggling to pay back their BRI debt. One of the key achievements of President Obama's Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, was to end discrimination against patients with pre-existing health conditions. But such discrimination by insurance companies never completely disappeared since it exempted Medicare plans that are used by millions of senior citizens. This discrimination is a deterrent against switching from private Medicare Advantage plans back to traditional Medicare. According to the American Prospect, seniors in 46 states who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans are unable to switch back to government-run Medicare without exposing themselves to financial risk and less coverage. In these states, Medigap insurers engage in health screening of new patients and can legally reject them for having costly pre-existing conditions. Only four states prohibit this practice, Massachusetts, New York, Maine, and Connecticut, that allow for an easier transition to traditional Medicare, where patients can choose their own doctors and health care providers. After a 20-year-long effort, private Medicare Advantage plans now cover a majority of senior citizens. But these private plans are coming under growing scrutiny by Congress for denial of care and overbilling. 
President Biden issued new rules to curb overbilling this year, but the powerful health insurance industry aggressively pushed back and succeeded in slowing down implementation. The Biden administration's Environmental Protection Agency is proposing new regulations that would require all water utilities to replace lead pipes. If approved, utility companies and many municipalities would be mandated to dig up and replace water pipe systems, many of which are over 100 years old. This meets a long-standing Biden pledge to remove every lead pipe in the country by 2031. This initiative is designed to protect vulnerable children and the public from the potent neurotoxin produced by lead pipes. The goal is to prevent another public health crisis like what happened in Flint, Michigan a decade ago, where thousands of children were exposed to dangerously high levels of lead in their drinking water. The rules change could have a significant impact in Chicago, Cleveland, and New York, which the Environmental Defense Fund says has the most lead pipes of any cities in the nation. Funding from the bipartisan infrastructure bill would pay for a third of the estimated $45 billion cost of replacing the nation's lead pipes over a decade. Utilities and local homeowners would likely be responsible for the rest. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the Israel-Hamas war enters its ninth week, the fighting and dying continue in Gaza, where an estimated 18,000 Palestinians have been killed. The war, triggered by the Hamas October 7th terrorist attack that killed some 1,200 Israelis and the kidnapping of 240 hostages, has set off protests and the rise of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia worldwide. In the U.S., University campuses have been at the center of protests and several incidents of violence. Rising tensions have caused some Jewish students and others who support Palestine to feel unsafe, with both sides criticizing university administrators' response. At a December 5th Congressional House hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses, New York Republican Representative Elise Stefanik asked the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania if calling for the genocide of Jews violated their campus's codes of conduct. The three university presidents' legalistic and evasive answers produced a firestorm of criticism, leading to the resignation of UPenn President Liz McGill, while Harvard and MIT's university boards supported their presidents. Your reporter spoke with Will Creeley legal director with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, who talks about the need to protect free speech amid rising tensions on campus over the Israel-Hamas war. Tensions are very high on campus. We've seen uh, violence uh, at some campuses. We've seen uh, true threats of violence. Uh, We've seen uh, a lot of uh, protected protests as well. Uh, But needless to say, tensions are high. So the House Committee on Education and the Workforce Uh, called this hearing. The presidents of MIT and Penn and Harvard were 
asked a series of questions about their response to uh, anti-Semitism on campus. And the, the question in particular that uh, sparked uh, the outrage and has now resulted, as you describe, in calls for resignation of the MIT and Harvard presidents and the resignation of Liz McGill, president of Penn, was whether calls for genocide at these private universities are, are prohibited by their student codes of conduct. And the presidents provided legally correct uh, answers that it depends, uh, that context does matter. Uh, but they failed to acknowledge, I think, the uh, real fear uh, and tension that has gripped their campuses. And frankly, they they sounded too much like they had been coached by lawyers to say the right thing. The other problem here, Scott, is that these schools have had checkered records on free speech. You know, I've been doing this work, as I say, for 17 years, and uh, Harvard and Penn uh, and MIT, uh, to varying degrees, have really had a tough time being consistent in their defense of free speech. So it struck folks as odd uh, that all of a sudden these presidents had found free speech scruples uh, under the bright lights of a congressional hearing when uh, previously uh, there had been actions that would have violated those promises and they didn't seem to have any problem with those. So I think it was a kind of classic trap uh, and they, they did not answer it uh, in, in a politically satisfactory way, even if they were legally correct. I also should note, just for your listeners, it's always something to be wary of when uh, you have bipartisan condemnation of university leadership. I mean, you know, again, they they have bad records here, but what's happening now uh, has the possibility of of being worse. The uh, governor of New York, uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, and many members of Congress are now writing uh, institutions to ask if they are prohibiting, quote-unquote, calls for genocide. And the thing is, um, broadly speaking, absent more, uh, some, quote-unquote, calls for genocide will be protected by the First Amendment. So we're in a a dangerous moment for free speech here when the government actor and elected official is asking you uh, to answer a question and there appears to be only one right answer. You should get nervous. Will, could you comment on legislation that's moving through the House of Representatives? I believe it's Amendment 114, to H.R. 5894 that takes away funding from any higher education institution that supports an event where anti-Semitism takes place. Pretty vague stuff, but maybe briefly you can talk about your response to this type of legislation. We've, we've pushed back there. We think that is in, indeed unconstitutional and it uh, would require uh, universities to uh, prohibit again, protected political speech or risk losing federal funding that is uh, at odds with the mission of our universities to serve as the marketplace of ideas. You know, universities uniquely in our society should be where uh, you can challenge the unchallengeable and you can have real robust debates, including about uh, who (laughs) arguments regarding genocide or anti-Semitism or the war uh, in in, uh, Israel. Uh, Gaza or anywhere else. I mean, those are the kinds of debates and discussions uh, we need uh, our future leaders to be able to have without fear of uh, punishment. And, you know, we know how to respond to speech that loses First Amendment protection, true threats, uh, intimidation, incitement, and discriminatory harassment. Those have carefully uh, crafted and narrow legal definitions. Uh, So in this country, we've chosen to ensure that political speech and debate can be at its freest. And again, that's nowhere more important than our colleges and universities. So legislation 
uh, like this would chill speech on campus to the detriment of us all. You can't censor your way to understanding. We can only do that via dialogue, and that's what the First Amendment is designed to protect, and that's what free speech uh, means on college campuses. That was Will Creeley, legal director with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. Find more commentary on the issue of free speech on campus by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In his funding request for billions of more dollars in military aid for Ukraine and Israel, President Biden included a request for increased funding for security at the Mexico border. But House Republicans responded by linking their support for Ukraine and Israel aid to the most controversial immigration reforms Congress has considered in at least 50 years. GOP demands include mandatory government e-verify before any worker starts a job in the U.S., preventing eligibility for asylum in the vast majority of cases, eliminating long-standing executive branch parole authority, and building Donald Trump's border wall. Earlier good news that a federal court had approved a historic settlement in the ACLU's lawsuit to stop future family separation at the border, a ruling that prohibited the practice for the next eight years, even if Trump is re-elected president in 2024, has been overshadowed by the current politics of immigration. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Kika Matos, president of the Los Angeles-based National Immigration Law Center, who talks about the Republican proposals, which she describes as extreme anti-immigrant in their intent, in what her organization is doing to fight back. What is it that we are looking at? We are looking at the possibility of the complete gutting of our nation's asylum laws. Our Republicans want a return to Title 42, which in essence shuts the border down and requires asylum seekers to wait in Mexico uh, as their cases are adjudicated. The Republicans also want to end a humanitarian parole program that is currently in place that allows a, a number of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela coming to the United States. They want a return to family detention. So they want to see entire families being put in detention centers. Uh, they want the border to be shut down if crossings, border crossings, hit a certain limit. So we are seeing a very radical package that Republicans are insisting uh, must be in place on the immigration front in order for them to approve a spending bill. It is extreme to the core. It is a package of some of Trump's greatest aspirations in terms of uh, what he wanted to see happen under his administration, and actually Title 42 is something that he put in place when he was president. Now, uh, the Republicans also want the expedited removals expansion to happen in the interior of the United States. And what that means is that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement would be able to quickly, anywhere in the United States, immediately deport people who made it to the interior of the United States who had been in the United States for two weeks or less. So we're looking at aggressive enforcement and deportations all over the country. What about people who have been here more than two weeks, like even many years, and are living and working and have families here? Are they also under threat? 
Uh, not under the provisions that are being offered by the Republicans, but what I will say, this is a beginning of what I think are going to be ongoing, very extreme anti-immigrant measures being advanced by Republicans, both in the House and in the Senate. What can you do? What can pro-immigrant rights organizations like yours and many others, what can you do? What are you doing? We are forcefully advocating for the Senate Democrats in the White House, and particularly the Senate Democrats, including Senator Chris Murphy, who is the lead negotiator on the Democratic side to hold the line. Um, we think that all of these measures are extreme, and we are reminding them that the the negotiations are one-sided. There is no counter to on the pro-immigrant side that the Republicans are demanding. There is no pathway to legalization. There is no status for dreamers. There is nothing there uh, that is pro-immigrant, and that is troubling. The other thing that we are reminding uh, Democratic senators in the White House is that this is not the way that you pass laws. The White House wants money in the budget for Ukraine in exchange for laws that will be permanent. So we ask what happens next year, right? If we move forward with this, what is next on the line of policies that the Republicans want to advance uh, and that they will advance by hijacking budget negotiations? That is a problematic way to engage in lawmaking. Uh, and we also want to remind the White House and the Senate Democrats that there have been efforts for decades to engage and to try to urge members of Congress to pass immigration laws. The last time we passed a comprehensive set of immigration laws was in 1986. We will never be able to engage in comprehensive negotiations around immigration laws if the president and the White House cave on these sets of radical demands. They are willing to move it, move forward on the backs of vulnerable asylum seekers, people who are desperately fleeing from persecution and violence in their home countries and trying to avail themselves of laws that were enacted at the international level after World War II and our nation's shameful history of rejecting boatloads of Jewish asylum seekers wanting to come to the United States. That is the genesis of our, our human rights, international obligations to support asylum laws. That was Kika Matos, president of the Los Angeles-based National Immigration Law Center. Learn more about the current debate on Ukraine-Israel aid and new proposed extreme immigration laws by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The United Nations COP28 climate talks in Dubai went into overtime on December 12th as representatives of nations around the world negotiated to find common ground on serious disagreements over how to deal with the future of fossil fuels in the summit's final text. Many governments criticized a December 11th draft of the final text for failing to call for a phase-out of fossil fuels that scientists maintain are the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions driving global warming. 
while 100 countries, including the United States and the European Union, had advocated for the adoption of language for a fossil fuel phase-out, members of the oil-producing OPEC nations opposed the move. The lack of progress in Dubai wasn't unexpected, as the COP28 president, Sultan al-Jaber, incorrectly claimed during the summit that there is no science indicating that a phase-out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, as agreed to in the 2015 International Paris Climate Agreement. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and climate activist who's been arrested in nonviolent civil disobedience climate actions. Here, Dr. Kalmus, speaking for himself, assesses what was and was not accomplished on seriously addressing the global climate crisis at the Dubai COP28 climate summit. First of all, like sometimes things get kind of written down, pulled out, compromised, negotiated at the very last minute. But I think the probably the top line headline of this climate summit is that it's completely overrun by the fossil fuel industry. And we need to recognize very, very clearly, everyone needs to know. And I don't think everyone does know, but everyone needs to know. So if, if you have friends who don't know this, make sure they know this, that the cause of global heating, by far the biggest cause, is fossil fuels. And the fossil fuel industry has been lying for almost 50 years. It's extremely well documented. They've been spending billions to fund disinformation. It's a very coordinated campaign. They've been, you know, basically legalized bribery, campaign donations to block action at, you know, local, state, federal levels. So to have uh, this climate summit be run, you know, be hosted by the United Arab Emirates, which is the second biggest fossil fuel producing nation in the world, and to be presided over. The president of this climate summit is their their country's, like they have a national um, fossil fuel corporation, ADNOC, and the CEO of that is the president of this climate summit. And the largest set of delegates is from the world's fossil fuel industry. So it's basically, it's like, I don't know, it's Run to the core. It reminds me of like a dead body with just teeming with maggots where, you know, like every one of those fossil fuel lobbyists and delegates is basically a maggot. So you can't, you can't expect to get a good outcome, right? So, so because fossil fuel is the cause, the solution is ending fossil fuels, period. That's it. So if the fossil fuel industry is in charge and they've spent 50 years showing us that they're acting dishonestly and doing everything they can to block climate action and to keep the gravy flowing for them, uh, and they're in charge of this process now, then it's just a sick joke. And I had an op-ed to that effect uh, right when the um, meeting started in Newsweek. So that's, I think that's the top-line thing. And then if you, you – know, I've been reading some uh, Twitter threads about the stock take and uh, the text that's coming out from – COP28. And uh, in my opinion, it's a nightmare scenario. It's, it's very dismaying. You know, it's grossly in, in, insufficient, um, just really mealy-mouthed language. Nothing in there about ending fossil fuels. Um, something, what was it? This one really got me. Um, the text calls on countries to, quote, take actions that could include reducing fossil fuels. So, so basically, just another year, um, it looks like right now, just another year of kicking the can down the road, um, even greater infiltration by the fossil fuel industry, and nothing kind of convincing me that 
um, the, you know, this process is taking us toward uh, a rapid end to the fossil fuel industry, which is what planet Earth desperately needs now. So that's my that's my summary. I wish it was better, but you know, you put the fox in, in charge of the hen house, and you get a bunch of dead chickens, I guess. And Peter, I, I did want to ask you about the, the really essential question that you talk about in your book. What's the most effective thing you think people listening can do to pressure you as politicians to overcome the power of the fossil fuel industry, to demand serious action to address the climate crisis, rather than just, uh, as you said earlier, kicking the can down the road? Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's striking that President Biden is refusing even to de- declare a climate emergency, which is, you know, kind of mind-boggling, right, that we're so clearly in a climate emergency. I mean, to me, that steady march from the last 20 or so years, last few decades, has been terrifying enough because it's just like every year the planet gets a little hotter, and, and every year we have politicians, including Democrats, that continue to just expand fossil fuels, like approve the Willow Project, to push the Mountain Valley Pipeline through, expand drilling on federal lands and waters, et cetera. So, yeah, it's very hard to know what to do as an individual. My view is that writing letters to politicians doesn't work anymore. Like, I, I don't I think that's a waste of time. I think petitions is kind of a waste of time. Um, you know, that those things assume that the people in charge all have you know our best interests uh, at heart, and it seems like what they have instead is uh, kind of financial ties to the fossil fuel industry, right? So if if that's the priority, then just calling their office or writing letters isn't going to do much. So we have what we need to do is mobilize the movement so that we can vote those people out of office who want to expand fossil fuels and replace them with people who who want to take climate action. Um, so the movement has to get stronger. That's the bottom line. So how do you do that? You do that by joining with other people, finding groups that you can like have strategies that you agree with and adding your voice to theirs uh, by taking risks. So we have to start taking risks in all of our institutions, in our social circles, speaking up. Like, you know, it, it'll feel a little bit uncomfortable because social norms right now are to kind of politely not talk about global heating and uh, earth breakdown. But we have to start moving those social norms away from fossil fuels, away from, you know, uh, Taylor Swift jetting off in her private jet, right? That that shouldn't be seen as socially acceptable anymore. Um, and yet, you know, it still apparently is. So raise your voices, uh, change your institutions, change your places of business, protest at your schools, um, but most importantly, join together with other people while you're doing that, because it'll be much more powerful and it will be much more fun. That was Dr. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and climate activist. Find more analysis and commentary on the COP28 Climate Summit and a link to Dr. Kalmus's website by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRWK in Midlothian, Virginia, WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, KPRI in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.